This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. But we're digging into the Old Testament together the book that Jesus read and the book where God reveals himself to us in new and surprising ways that might be strange to us. Now, I'm aware that the last three messages have been, well, they've been pretty heavy, let's be honest. And they've been challenging and convicting because these chapters have been challenging and convicting. But there's a danger that we go away every Sunday feeling blasted by the preaching, and I turn into some kind of angry prophet shaking my fist in your face week after week, and that is not the father heart of God. And so today, it might be challenging, but not in the same way. This is a challenge for us to rest in what God has done. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and what is remarkable and unusual about this chapter, and perhaps unique in all the narrative history of the Bible after Abraham is Israel does not appear in this chapter at all. It's just God and the Philistines. So let's turn together to 1 Samuel chapter 5. And it would be very embarrassing if I could not find it in my own Bible in front of you all. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning... Behold, Dagon had fallen face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the, of the God of Israel there. But after they brought it around... The hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up 
to heaven. Our children are 9 and 11 years old, and they're just getting to the age when Michelle and I dare to leave them at home with the phone while we go out and perhaps have dinner with some friends. And we do that with some nervousness and trepidation because we're not quite sure what the little rascals are getting up to by themselves. Are they going to stab themselves with knives? Will they stick their heads in the oven? Kids on their own do all sorts of suicidal and destructive things. And it's a great act of trust as a parent when you let them take care of themselves. And here the Israelites have been forced to let God take care of himself. Up to this point, God has been protected by his high priest and his priests and surrounded by the people of Israel. And now God is all on his own. And how well will the God of Israel fare having to fend for himself? We are arriving at one of the darkest chapters in the history of Israel, one of its very darkest. And the people have suffered a shattering defeat. And they've fled for their lives, those who have survived the battle. They've rushed off to their homes. Uh, The high priest Eli has fallen over backwards and broken his neck because of the shock. And his daughter-in-law has cried out in childbirth, the glory has departed from Israel. We had this God and we thought he was strong and he was strong for us in the past. And to our great dismay, God has been defeated on the battlefield. Because in the ancient world, every war was a holy war. And these armies between cities or nations may be fighting here on ground level. But what's really happening up above on the spiritual plane, the more real plane, is that the gods we serve are doing battles, are doing battle in the heavens. And whichever god manages to overpower his or her rival, their hosts down below will have the victory. And so what both the Philistines and the Israelites would have understood, as well as any neighboring people was, that on the battlefield of Aphek, Yahweh, the god of Israel, had been soundly defeated. I mean, crushed. He put up no resistance to Dagon. And the Philistines had been very scared when they saw the ark there. But the hordes of the Philistines had just cut through Israel like a hot knife through butter. It had been a terrifying, terrible defeat for Israel and for Israel's God. And so the Philistines do what any pagan people of that time would have done. They collect the ark of God as a trophy from the, ba- from the battlefield, and they bring it back home. Now, the Israelites were odd because they didn't have an idol. They didn't have a physical representation of their God, like every single people group around them did. But they did have this ark. They had this holy box, this rather small and unimpressive piece of furniture. You could have fit it in the, in the back of your car, really, But there is at least something that represents the God of Israel. And the Philistines seem to know that the Israelites believe that their God somehow dwells in or above this box, somehow over or between these angels. And so they take this box back to the temple of their God, Dagon. 
And the idol equals the God. When you own the idol, you own the God. So they believe they have actually captured the God of Israel. And they bring it back to Ashdod. They seem to be a military confederacy of five cities. And Ashdod is probably their most prominent city. And they bring it into the house of Dagon, who is the God at the top of their pantheon. And they set the the Ark of the Covenant by or near this idol. And it's been put into a subservient position. This Ark, this Yahweh, is no longer the God of Israel. He's our God. And just like Facebook might acquire Instagram, and now it belongs to their corporate properties, now the God of Israel belongs to us, the Philistines. And if he has any power left, and honestly, he's seen quite weak on the battlefield, but if there's any power remaining, from now on, this power is going to be used in service to Dagon and to the people of Dagon, the Philistines. And by what happens later in the chapter, we can assume that this statue of Dagon is massive. It's probably standing at the back of their temple, and by the fact that it's fallen forward onto the threshold down the whole length of the hall, it must have been a huge and impressive statue indeed. And by comparison, this little box of the Israelites looks quite small indeed. It's modest and inert, and it's sitting there in a subservient position before Dagon. And you can imagine that even while the Israelites on that very night are in panic and terror, packing up their belongings, hitting the road as refugees before the Philistines come, there in uh, Ashdod, there is joy, there's celebration, there's singing, there's offerings being made to their mighty God, Dagon, who has conquered the seemingly unconquerable God of Israel. And then it's bedtime. And they turn off the lights, they set the security alarms, they close the doors, and they go to sleep. And the Philistines are having a nice, restful, contented sleep. There's not much sleep, I'm sure, going on across the border in Israel that night. And people are very anxious indeed, wondering what's going to happen to their future now that God has been defeated. And then the next morning... The priest's alarm clocks go off and they have their coffee and their cereal and they go off to the house of Dagon to open the door for the day's worship. And a shocking sight meets their eye. Somehow, somehow during the night, this idol, this statue has toppled forward. And worst of all, just by the way he's lying, it almost looks like he's fallen on his face in worship and reverence before this ark of this pagan god that we defeated. It's, it's, it's probably just a very awkward coincidence. I mean, things like this do happen sometimes. Statues do fall over, and things can look rather humiliating, but the priests are there. They close the doors. And they carefully, exerting all their energy, somehow winch this statue back up into its original position. And we can imagine this time they make sure they screw this thing down properly. They set up steel cables 
this idol is not going to fall down again. And all is well and good. They lock up for the night. And the next morning, they open the door, and something even worse has happened. Because not only has this idol fallen forward on its face again to the ark, it's like somehow Dagon cannot keep himself from bowing down to the superior God. But even worse, his head has snapped off, and so has his hands. And they're lying across the threshold right in front of the priests of Dagon. And these idols in those days were not carved out of a solid piece of stone. They were put together and assembled in pieces. And most of the idol would have been covered in cloth, like a garment. And you would have saved your most precious and beautiful metals for the head and the hands, which is the part of the idol that the worshipers would see. And now the head and the hands have snapped off at their weakest joints. This is obviously a lot more than a coincidence. And now something even worse is happening than their God, their powerful God, Dagon, bowing down in reverence to Yahweh. It's not just worship that's happening here. It is a humiliating defeat. There are a lot of injuries you can receive and still have a decent quality of life. But once you're decapitated, things are going to be very difficult for you from that point forward. And even worse, his hands have been chopped off, quite literally. His hands have snapped off at the wrists. And anyone in the ancient world would have recognized the significance of this, because after a battle... What people would do in order to count the casualties is they would go around and cut off the hands of all the corpses that had died. And then they would pile them in front of their king or leader and count up all the hands and divide by two, presumably. And that would be the symbol of their victory. The hand symbolizes power. And if you've ever tried to do anything with your hands tied behind your back, you know that you are very, very helpless. And now this God, his power has been taken away from him. He no longer has hands. He no longer has a head. This God is not just defeated. He's crushed and emptied of all of his power. And this power encounter, by the way, is happening in Dagon's own temple far away from Israel. He's on his home turf here where he has every advantage and he's surrounded by his priests and there are tens of thousands of glittering spears surrounding him and God alone without any help from Israel is doing battle with Dagon and he's wiping the floor with him. Dagon is falling to pieces quite literally before the ark of God and he's been turned into a zero into a nothing. And we don't know whether or not the priests, what the priests did with this body. All they have left is the trunk. Maybe they duct taped the hands and the neck and the, and the head back onto the body and propped him up again. But they knew this time that their God had been defeated in the most unmistakable way. 
And now they no longer have Dagon to fight for them. They no longer have Dagon to protect them from this terrifying and alien power that they themselves have brought into the very heart of their civilization. And now the terrifying death-dealing power of God goes outside of the temple doors into the whole city. And our narrator tells us that the hand of God was very heavy upon the people there. And notice that word, hand. Dagon no longer has hands. All he has are stumps. The only divine hand that matters is God's. And he's resting his hand and crushing these people who thought they had defeated him. In Hebrew, the word glory and the word heavy come from the same root. The glory of God is a heavy and crushing experience. And now the Philistines are experiencing this glory that's radiating out of the temple of their own God. And they are suffering deeply from this glory. There's this plague of tumors that's afflicting them. You know, in the next chapter, we encounter these golden mice, and some people think maybe this is some form of the bubonic plague, some early form, some uh, perhaps the swelling of the lymph nodes in the armpits and the groin. Who knows what it was, but it was painful and humiliating and uncomfortable and very, very dangerous. This is not at all what we expected when we clamor to be the first ones to get the ark in our city. Yeah, later on, we'll let the ark go on loan to the other four cities. We're the most important city, and we get the trophy first of all. And it turns out that they've bitten off more than they can chew. And this plague starts spreading throughout the city. And these people realize we are in deep trouble here. And we need to have a political consultation among the five lords of these five cities. Notice that they don't even bother crying out to Dagon for help. Clearly, their God is useless against this strange foreign God. The best we can do is come up with a political situation. And perhaps, perhaps if we move the ark somewhere else, maybe there are some kind of local conditions here that are favorable to the God of Israel. Perhaps if we move it inland to Gath, perhaps things will be better. And I don't imagine the Lord of Gath was very excited. I doubt he was the one who volunteered his own city, but he's outvoted four to one, and the ark is brought to Gath. And it's the same story all over again. The hand of the Lord is against the city. There's a huge panic. The plague is spreading among men, men, young and old. Tumors are breaking out again. So very quickly, the ark goes down the road to the city of Ekron, the third city. And the Philistines aren't stupid. The people in the third city see the ark coming, and they have a very bad feeling about what's going to happen. No one wants the ark in their temple anymore. And they start crying out, God has, they've sent this ark here so that we can be killed as well. And sure enough, there's a deathly panic in the whole city. People are dropping like flies. And the cry of anguish from this city is going up to the heavens. And the leaders gather again and realize they only have one 
humiliating option left to them to send the ark back to Israel. We're going to need a refund on this object because it didn't quite meet our expectations. Things have turned out very badly for us. And we were planning a victory tour for Dagon, and instead, we've inadvertently hosted a victory tour for the God of Israel as the ark goes from city to city. And wherever it arrives, it demonstrates the surpassing power of Israel's God over whatever the Philistines can put up against it. And the only option the Philistines have left to them is to let go of their trophy and send it back to Israel. There's a very obvious lesson for all of us lying on the surface of this passage, a lesson that would be clear even to a five-year-old. And it's this. God can take care of his own business. God is more than capable of fighting his own battles. A very obvious lesson but one we all forget so easily. And there is a dark humor here in the picture of the priests of Dagon winching up their idol and putting him back in its place. The Lord God of Israel does not need to be moved around and propped into position. And yet we all imagine that somehow God needs our help and God needs to be protected from his enemies. And he requires the services of his worshipers. In the pagan world, people believed that the gods needed the humans that served them. And there are texts that describe the gods swarming like flies around the offerings of the worshipers. Gods get hungry. And they need food, and therefore, we give them food, and they will take care of us. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not that kind of little God. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need to be cleaned. He doesn't need to be taken care of. He doesn't need to be propped back up into position when he falls on his face. He's not that kind of God. See, we flatter ourselves because we want to feel that God needs us. God needs me. And we tell ourselves that God has this great project. He loves the world. He has this massive plan of salvation. But unfortunately, God has tackled something a little too big for him. And he's got a good heart, God does. He has a good heart. But he's gotten a little ahead of himself. And he's putting out a call, a desperate call for help for Christians who are willing to serve him and save God from the embarrassment of his kingdom failing without us. And we speak about ourselves building the kingdom of God and advancing the kingdom of God and even growing the kingdom of God 
And the kingdom of God does not need your help. Only one person builds the kingdom, and that is God. Only one person advances the kingdom, and that is God. And only one person grows the kingdom, and that is God. And he uses us in that process, not because he needs us, but out of the sheer overflowing joy of God that he wants to bring us into his own mission. See, we begin by flattering ourselves with a thought that God needs us. But in the end, that false belief, that idolatrous conviction about God always ends up in massive anxiety for us. It's very tiring having to prop up your idol again and again. It's very tiring having to feed your idol again and again. It's very tiring serving a projection of yourself where you're the one who has to do all the work and all the labor of keeping his project going. And perhaps there are people here who are serving God with great zeal and having made great sacrifices for the kingdom for a long time, and now you're getting burnt out because you've been propping God back up again and again and again. And God says to you, I do not need you. And that is tremendously liberating. Because if we serve a God who needs us, that is going to be a God who takes and takes and takes without end. But we serve a God who does not need us, and he is a God who gives and gives and gives without end. So if we're serving God and feeling exhausted, if we're serving God and feeling scraped to the bone and burnt out, what kind of God are we serving? What kind of God are we serving if there is so little rest in our service? It is remarkable that there are no Israelites in this chapter. And they don't go back to Shiloh and activate their Mossad agents and mount an amphibious rescue operation and kick open the doors of the Temple of Dagon and helicopter the ark out of there back to Israel. No Israelites necessary. God can fight his own battles and he does not need us. You know, we put our faith so often in human beings rather than in God for the future of the kingdom. And when some greatly gifted person rises to the fore or some political leader is elected, or some celebrity comes to faith in Christ, we put all the burden of the kingdom on their shoulders. And when they disappoint us, as they inevitably will, our faith is shattered, and we think that God has been defeated. God can fight his own battles. And what's so funny about this chapter is the Israelites have all fled home in utter despair. And they think this is the end of the story. God has been with us for a long time, but he's clearly past his best by date. 
His power has evaporated. And this is the, this is the end for us. And he may have helped us hundreds of years ago in the Exodus. And we've heard those stories come down through history. But this is, this is now, dude. And we were on the battlefield and we saw what happened to the ark. We trusted in God. We didn't turn to idols like we usually do. We trusted in God and the ark was there and it did nothing. We expected it to melt the faces off these Philistines and it did nothing. The ark was useless and there was no power whatsoever. And now what? The kingdom is at an end. God has been defeated. He's been taken into captivity. If he has any power left, he's fighting for the other guys now. And we're all alone. And we're just waiting for the final blow to fall, for one last Philistine operation to crush us down into the dust. And while they're filled with their despair and their anxieties and their fear, the future, that feeling of total nakedness before the threats that face them. Well, all that is happening on the other side of the border. God is doing battle alone. God's doing battle alone, and he's proving himself supreme over the gods that face him. No help required from Israel. And as we look at the state of the kingdom around the world today, as you think about what things are like in your home country, you too may feel that the glory has departed. And there have been great stories in centuries past of revival and the Holy Spirit moving, but that was the past. And God may have overcome Dagon and the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the barbarians. Sure, God had his day. God had his glory times, but this is now. And this is a new God that we're facing. And this is a new ideology. And there are powerful cultural forces at work that we haven't experienced before. And the church is weak and the leaders we're trusting in are failing us. And perhaps the final blow is not far away. And our poor little God is all on his own. He doesn't have us to protect him. And we don't know what to do. And we're demoralized and far away. How on earth are things going to turn out well? The glory has departed. And it's all over. But the final finish. But God is not dependent on us. And there is no God yet that has faced our God and come away victorious. It is amazing that the Jews are this tiny, fragile, weak little people surrounded by enemies down the centuries. And yet again and again, somehow, because of their God, they have emerged victorious. So today is not a challenge for us to march off into the land of the Philistines and conquer them. It's a call for us to remember that our God is doing battle. And we can go to bed and sleep because our God does not slumber or sleep.
God is taking care of his own kingdom. And he somehow, again, will prove himself supreme over everything that faces him. God does not need our help. And that is very good news. And that may be a lesson obvious to any five-year-old, but there is a deeper lesson and a deeper pattern in the Bible that is not obvious to any of us. Here the people of Israel have wandered far from God. They have a corrupt priesthood. The Psalms in Jeremiah tell us they were worshiping idols at this time. And according to the book of Deuteronomy, God had warned them, if you obey me and serve me faithfully, things will go well and your enemies will flee from you. But if you do not obey me and if you serve idols and turn to evil, you will flee from your enemies and they will take you into captivity and exile. But what's strange is at the end of the previous chapter, although the Israelites flee because of their sin, they're not the ones taken into exile. God himself goes into captivity. And all his followers think it's the end. And God goes into the darkness, into the heart of the enemy, taken there as a trophy of their victory. And there, in weakness and captivity, God conquers. Does that remind you of anything at all in the Bible? The great story, the great theme of a God who conquers in weakness. Our Jesus walks to the cross bound, captured by the powers of evil, and on the cross he takes on himself the exile that his people deserve. And when he dies, the hearts of his followers turn cold with despair. And we put our hope in this person, but now the glory has departed from Israel. And Jesus, the God-man, is taken captive and he goes down into the realms of the dead. to be exhibited there as a sign of the victory of God's enemies, that sin and Satan and death have prevailed and they have the son of God in their clutches. But they discover they have bitten off more than they can chew. And in the land of darkness where Jesus goes alone without his helpers and without his followers, he conquers all those powers. And he emerges victorious, having put all these false gods to an open shame in the triumph of his cross and his resurrection. Our God conquers in weakness so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every power, angelic, human or demonic will fall prostrate before Jesus 
and confess that he alone is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this is the great work of salvation that we celebrate as Christians, something that we in no way contributed to. We did not go down into death with Jesus. He did that for us, and his victory becomes ours. We're going to take communion in a few moments. And think of the Last Supper where Jesus has the 12 gathered round him, offering them the bread and the cup as a token of what he's going to do. And they're all swearing, Jesus, we'll go to the end with you. We're going to die with you. And of course, they all fail him in their different ways. And Jesus is taken from Gethsemane alone. But even though he goes alone, this is still for them. And mysteriously, by the grace of God, these disciples who could not help their master participate and are blessed by what he's done for them. Just as we participate and are blessed by the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us in the land of darkness. So let's pray and thank God for his victory in weakness. Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We rejoice at what you have done for us in Jesus. All this time we've been carrying you on our backs, thinking that somehow the kingdom depended on us and we were responsible for working out salvation. And all this time, it's a pure gift, one purely by what Jesus, your son, has done for us on the cross. God, help us to rest to stop trying to give to you and receive from you today. As we take this bread and as we take this cup, we pray that you would sustain our lives and fill our hearts with faith, hope, and love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.